Hello, welcome to Why Not Me. In life, we face many trials and obstacles, many challenges, and in the thick of it, we can be tempted to think, why me? But every obstacle presents an opportunity and every trial can bring triumph. So I want to encourage you to adapt a mindset of, why not me? When, when in the middle of it, when things are tough, look around and think, why not me? It's, it's happening for a purpose. And then when success is at your doorstep and all you have to do is open it, you may find yourself hesitating, questioning, is this for me? Do I deserve this? And I want to encourage you to adapt a mindset of why not me? Throw the door open wide, shout to the world, why not me? Embrace your success. I'm your coach, Todd Halls. I'm grateful to have you on this journey. Welcome to Why Not Me. Hello, hello. Welcome to Why Not Me, turning trials into triumphs, seeking and embracing success. This is your host, Coach Todd Halls. I am so grateful to be here today. Man, it's a wonderful day. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. I love having you here. I love you all. I'm excited to share a guest with you today. We have with us today, Gerald Leonard. Now, Gerald is a leading authority in workplace productivity. He delivers powerful strategies for HR directors, operations, and PMO executives and their workforces. He's a recognized expert in IT project management, conversational intelligent coach, and he's a frequent media guest expert. Gerald, welcome to the show. Welcome to Why Not Me. Thanks for being here. Todd, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So the the as I in, introduced you and I was saying that I realized it's 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 fairly broad and pretty professional related, which is awesome. But if you would fill in some blanks, Gerald, who tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I think probably one of the things that we didn't have I didn't have on that list was that I'm also a classical and jazz bass player. And that's how I started my career. And I started off as a musician and um playing music you know, there's so much that you learn from just being a musician. Uh, you learn how to play well together. You learn about uh, practicing. You learn about uh, how important coaching and having the right person who is advanced, more you know, more advanced than you are, helping you, helping to lead you and guide you through the process. Well, with that backdrop, um, I did some ministry work in New York area for about six years. And then I decided I really wanted to go back into music. But at that time, I was married and had a couple of kids. And I wanted to make sure I was there for them. So I got into uh, IT when if you could spell IT, they'd let you in. Because it was such a demand around the late 1990s. Um, but I grew in it really quickly because it was a lot like picking up another instrument. Uh, and I realized very quickly as well that I was really good at managing chaos and walking into a situation that might have been a little bit of disarray and quickly organizing it, uh, getting everything aligned and getting everybody on board. Uh, I had been trained in leadership and I was using a lot of those skills, even as a musician to organize concerts and, and so on. And so from that, I, but I also at the same time uh, was playing music professionally while I was doing the IT and I grew and consulting and certifications and so on. And later on in life, I decided and put together these concepts where as going to rehearsals and working as a musician, I saw a lot of the same concepts 
in going into business and working in small teams and working on projects and being a project manager and working with other uh, very um, high-level consultants or business folks. And that's where my first book came in when I wrote a book called Culture is the Base. And it's all about business culture. But, you know, it's around that time the book, the, the song came out, uh, all about that base. And um, it was all it was all about, you know, because the baseline really lays down the culture of the song. And so just like the base lays down the culture of the song, the emotions of the team and the values of the team lays down the culture of the organization. And then my next book was called Workplace Jazz. Uh, again, being a musician, working in small quartets or small groups. Um, and then business became, you went from large project teams to small project teams. That was a lot like a jazz quartet. Um, same principles applied. And so then I ended up writing my third book that just recently came out by and was published by John Wiley called A Symphony of Choices. And that's a business novel. And it teaches the principles of project program portfolio management, as well as decision-making, workplace engagement, and uh, really teaches the principles of mentorship. Because I believe mentoring is the HOV lane for success. So those are, those are, those, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Uh, as you as you started out, I was reminded of yeah. Um, as you, you shared about the musician, and you mentioned the word chaos, and it's interesting. I've had this week, um, I've had a couple other interviews, and one of them was a musician, a lady who hadn't who dropped set music down twenty five years ago, and then recently picked it back up. Um, and then the other person I talked to is a uh, he actually wrote a book about chaos, and he t he's, he's a uh, faith-based entrepreneur, Gary Harps. And he talks about how oftentimes we think chaos is bad, like it's something to be avoided. And in that interview, he, I was, he just challenged that notion that no, actually chaos is God gives it to us and he created us to overcome the chaos. And yes. you describe you describe that as what you've learned how to do first in music. Um, and there's that song, uh, called it's symphony i can't think of a band that does it right now but but the song talks about how throughout the chaos god is creating a symphony and so and then he created us to do the same thing the parallels to the business world i had not thought of before but it is it's it's remarkable to, to have you describe it of course it, it lines up so it's it's it makes sense that that was a transition for you um yes when when did you recognize that, like, when was the decision made, you know, I love music, I'm going to also serve the business world? Was it was it really gradual or was it just like one of those aha moments like, oh, there's carryover, I need to do this? It was a, it was a family need. <laughs> yeah. You know, the mother of necessity, invention is the mother of necessity. Yeah. Um, I had made a decision to get back into music and play full time. And I was doing that, but I also knew that I didn't want to go on the road and be away from my family. And a lot of the musicians at that time, if you were to really make a good living at being a musician, you had to basically leave your family and go out on the road for months on end, playing every night somewhere. And, you know, my dad growing up was always there in my life. 
And so I just couldn't see having brought into the world two, you know, a boy and a girl, two kids that, and I love them dearly. I just couldn't see myself leaving them. And so the idea of switching and getting into IT, that was actually, a, it was a, it was necessity. Um, uh, I was able to sleep, k- keep playing music, but I really wanted to make sure I provided for them in uh, the most, um, the fullest way as I could and making sure that they had what they need as, as kids. Cause they didn't ask to be here. It was my desire, my, 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 my wife's desire to have children. And I wanted to make sure they had a great childhood and that I was a part of their life. And so getting into IT at the time and doing and switching up a little bit was, was a form of necessity. And then I, it just began to, I saw it as something as I got into it that, Hey, this is something that's a big part of me as well. And the two began to grow together. So yeah. it wasn't just something gradual and it wasn't something I was like, Oh, let me think about this. It was like, okay, I need to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. 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 And sometimes that's the way it is. You know, I was thinking about a quote from Albert Einstein. that says in the middle of the, dif- in, in the middle of every difficulty lies opportunity. And, you know, that was a challenging time, but it also exposed a lot of opportunities that I actually, actually had been preparing for, unbeknownst to me as a musician and the things I had been learning as a musician in the year I spent getting into learning about IT and technology and computers in 95. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it kind of amazing how, you you know, things are happening here like, and just using you as an example from what you just said, you're developing as a musician and you're thinking this is it. And then, then the path changes. And maybe at the time you're wondering, well, why is this, why is this taking place where these musician years, what, what was it for? And now looking back, you can clearly see, oh, actually that was preparation for this, for this larger role that God had for you. Uh, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Exactly. Exactly. Cause I, I don't think I would have ever been able to pull together the information that I pulled together if I hadn't gone through that experience. Hmm. And when you start. As you started pulling information, like where, where, where all were your sources? Where, where did you get your learning? I, I know you've mentioned music, but what, where, where else did you develop the skills that you've got? As I, as I've looked at your, your bio, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of certifications and a lot of education going on there. Like what are some of the ones that stand out that have really served you well? Okay. So the foundation of it was curiosity. And the other foundational uh, component for me was, as a musician, if you want to grow, you always are looking for a teacher, right? You're always looking for a teacher who's setting the example and doing what you want to do. And so you go out and find a good coach or or, or a music teacher. So I used that same philosophy when I switched careers and got into IT and business. So I would look out and go, okay, if this was an instrument in a musical uh, genre, how would I go about it? Well, I need to find some of the best teachers or instrumentalists in this area, being IT project management, consulting, and so on. And so I started going out and looking at webinars or looking at podcasts or looking at any, you know, books, anything I can get my hands on. And what I found was that a lot of the people that I was reaching out to were accessible. In other words, they wrote a book, but they would also have a program. 
And next thing I know, they'd have, they'd, they'd be coming to either, I was living in New York and then I lived in Maryland near the DC area. They'd be coming to one of those cities and I was able to actually go and meet with them and spend time with them and get to know them. And I, and I had already had my master's degree. And so when switching that career, I didn't really have the time to go back to school and get another degree. And I realized that having my master's, that the certification route where I read a book, took a course, studied for this exam, and went and took the exam, employers were looking at that level of certification with the same mindset as if I had achieved a different degree. And so they looked and said, okay, well, he has his bachelor's and master's degree in music, so he's very educated, he's he graduated and so on. I mean, now he has these other skills of hands-on experience and the technical knowledge and the certification to go behind it. So they ignored the fact that I hadn't gone to business school or a technical school. They looked at, okay, this guy's a you know pretty smart guy. He's educated. He has a degree and he has all these certifications. And so that became my route. And again, I'm very curious and I love learning. And that's kind of like uh, whenever challenges go on, I'll find a book, find a course, find an audio program, go through it, and it makes a difference in my life. And so I just got on that this um, this upward will of continuously growing and learning. I still do it today. That's awesome. It's one of so yeah. Per- perpetual growth is one of my uh, foundational values, and so to 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 hear that you're still on. You're still curious. You're still out there yeah. looking for more to learn and grow. So that's awesome. Uh, you mentioned curiosity a couple times. And a few minutes ago, you quoted Einstein. And I think there's an Einstein quote where he says, look, I'm no more intelligent than the other the other guy. I've just always been more curious. Something to that effect. Um, when, yes. did you, when did you develop this the, your level of curiosity? I think as a kid, honestly, because once I started playing music, um, it was, again, I'm going to give away my age, but I grew up in central Florida, Lakeland, Florida. And in 1974, they created the Lakeland Civic Center. Prior to that time, if, if you wanted to go see a concert of like a major artist, you would have to go to Tampa or Orlando. And being a 12-year-old kid, uh, that wasn't going to be the case for me. but with them putting the Lakeland Civic Center there, I could go out and mow some lawns and do some work. And at that time, buying a ticket to go see the Commodores or Earth, Wind & Fire or whoever, Buddy Rich Orchestra, wasn't $2,000, right? It was $20, it's $30. I could go out, make some money, get with my buddies in the band, buy the ticket, go to the concert, and that sparked the curiosity even more. How do they do this? How do they play that well? What instruments are they using? Who do they work with? So I would just walk away from those experiences with even more questions. And that just drove me to the point where I start doing work because I was the youngest of six, right? I was the youngest of six. And if I wanted to take lessons and do a lot of those other things, um, mom and dad had money to make sure we could eat and have clothes and do everything we need to do. But all of this extracurricular they didn't have the money for that. So I went out and I did the same thing I did before. I mowed lawns. I did uh, uh, things and I paid someone to teach me. And that was another lesson. If you want to get better at what you're doing, invest in yourself. 
And see, so even as a kid, I learned that lesson and I've never forgotten that, you know, how much I took those lessons serious when it wasn't my mom and dad's money, but it was my money that I went out and earned and paid for, paid for the guy to tell me what I was doing wrong, what, uh, how to practice, what I needed to do so that I would then go and I, you know, I didn't waste those lessons. I put them into practice. Fast forward. As I got older, finished my master's and doing everything else that I was doing, I used that same philosophy, invest in yourself. I still use it. I spent last weekend, I was up in Atlanta. I spent two and a half days with Les Brown. Uh, I've, I've, been, I've worked and uh, been interviewed by Jack Canfield. I've invested in working with him. Um, and, and so how's that paid off? It pays off. Because they're at a whole different level and their insights and what they pour into you takes you to a whole different place. Um, as, Je- as Les Brown would always say, there's greatness within you, right? Uh, and, and, you know, Jack Canfield, you know, always says that, you know, uh, whatever you focus on, that's the direction you're going to go. Les Brown would say, wherever you, whatever you tune into is what you turn into. So as I think about all the different things that I've learned from these, these giants, um, it was me investing in myself that allowed me to get around them to learn a lot of these principles. And it's still changing my life and allowing me to grow. That's amazing. It's such a great lesson for all of us. I, I like how you um, a, bring forth the value, the fact that you were paying for it with your money. You just show up different to those lessons. And and you, know, you did that as you did that as a kid, but it's the same thing for us as adults. You know, it's, it's a different level. Somebody says, Hey, here's this free thing. Let's go listen to it. And you're dreaming, daydreaming about being on the board or whatever. But if you have to, if you have to get a little skin in the game, suddenly it's like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention and see what I can take away from this. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think one of the most challenging, difficult things that people can do, and it's changing now, but I think it's still there. It's that if they are waiting for their employer to invest in them. Hmm. And I would say, don't wait for your employer to send you to a program or to send you to a training or to send you to a class. Take the initiative and, and invest in yourself. Set aside Brian Tracy, one of my mentors, uh, Mike Rayburn, and I, I learned this from him and from Brian Tracy. He would say, whatever you're making, take 10% of that and invest it back in your own education on a yearly basis. And by doing that, you're going to see your own income and revenue grow because what that 10% that you invest in yourself is going to put you in a, pl- a totally different place so that people see the value that you're bringing is worth more than what you're bringing and they're going to it's going to automatically put you in a place where you can increase your revenue and grow so then you invest the next 10% and that's a whole lot more money and you're able to then keep going uh, from there yeah, yeah, the the ROI is is tremendous, and yeah, so it's an it's an easy investment to make once you realize that. But sometimes getting people kind of off the off the fence, so to speak, and and helping them realize that that's the challenge, isn't it? It is, it is, but they have to see it for themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that, um, and I'm going to use this line later on, I think, but. Uh, see, the base 
the, the baseline sets the culture of the music. And then you tie that over to, um, to the business, you know, into the business world. Let's talk about business culture a little bit. What even does sure. that, what even does that mean? So business culture is really the, the personality of the business. And the personality of the business really starts with what's the vision of the business and then what are the values of the business? Like, what do they value? Where, where are they going? What's, what's their criteria for how they do things? And then it's also the stories that they tell you as the customer or their brand, because a brand is nothing but an emotional experience. You know, when you think of Nike or you think of Starbucks or you think of Amazon, you know, there's an emotional experience. I mean, you know, why would I go pay $5 for a cup of coffee that I could brew at home with that would cost me far less? It's because you want that emotional experience of walking around with that Starbucks cup and what that means. It means that, hey, I am worth this $5 cup of coffee and I, I know how to treat myself good. It's an emotional thing. And you think about music. If you hear a great bass line, you know, another one's Bites the Dust from Queens or Good Times from uh, Le Freak, or, or you hear the Michael Jackson's Beat It, each one of those have a different vibe, but it sets a tone. And you think about that song and it's kind of, you kind of envision that artist and the people attending that concert and you see the culture of that, of that group, of that infinity group. And it's the same way with, with business. So in my book, Culture is the Base, what I did is I researched, um, like, what are the critical components of things that create a culture? And I looked at a number of articles through Harvard Business Review. I looked at things from NIH. I looked at things from MIT or the Wharton School, because I love to look at and research material that's peer-reviewed. Because then I don't have to worry about it. Did somebody just make this up and they pull it out of the air or is it scientifically tested? And if it's usually from one of those institutions, some, you know, there's been a few, um, professors or scholars who've looked at it, analyzed it and said, yes, this is, you know, this is on the right track. And what I found was that there were seven components that built a culture within an organization, a family, a church. And those things were, your vision, the values, the stories that you told, the, the buy-in that was created, the um, best practices that were used, the environment, and the execution or the cadence of activities that made up the organization. And so those became the seven principles or seven processes of building a culture. And you can start from anywhere. You can start looking at, well, what stories do we tell ourselves as a business? And are we creating a business that our employees and our customers are buying into? You know, the only reason you go back to a store over and over and over again is because you have bought into their culture. You like the way they do business. It makes you feel good. Whether it's the grocery store around the corner or the gas station or the dry cleaner or wherever. There's an emotional connection. And if you have to move neighborhoods and change stores, you go through a withdrawal. <laughs> <laughs> you do. So, so that makes sense on the buy-in. Um, what's it look like? So we're, we're in, a, in a day and age when, by and large, the, the employee is not engaged. 
Yeah. So I would I would say a, a, an employee that's well certainly the the actively disengaged, but but then there's the the, the middle ground, the, the disengaged. I would say they're not bought in. That would be my perception. Would yeah. that? Would you agree with that? I would totally agree. The Gallup uh, poll um, organization has a, a identified that there's about 23% of employees that are bought in are engaged. 23%. So that means the other group are not engaged. They're disengaged. In fact, the Gallup did research and found that globally on a yearly basis, it's costing organizations about $8.8 trillion of lost productivity because employees are not engaged. This is a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. And here's one of the things, here's one of the things I believe, and it's, it's, and I learned it through a program, a, a book I read first. And then I, I, you know, like I said, I'm very curious. So I read the book, went to the webinar with the author, and then I joined her certification program. Unfortunately, she passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Her name was Judith Glazer. She wrote a book called Conversational Intelligence. And one of the things that she taught in the book that I learned that I use in my own practice is that conversations are much more chemical than they are verbal. So I'll say that again. Conversations are much more chemical than they are verbal. In other words, when we're having a conversation and it's going well and you're enjoying that conversation, it's because your brain has begun to produce all the positive neurochemicals, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and GABA. If the conversation we're having is not going well, your brain produces cortisol and adrenaline. So you finish the conversation, it's like, oh, my neck is hurting and, and my muscles are tight. And I'm just feeling like really stressed out right now. Well, that's because conversations are chemical. So if I want to get in employees engaged, I have to decide, you know, are they positively being affected or are they negatively being affected? Because if they're negatively being affected and they're coming to work, then their brains are producing cortisol and adrenaline and they're already in, tied up and intense. Having a conversation of, hey, let's get going. We're all going to do this together is not going to work. So you have to do things, have activities, uh, structure the work environment to where they can lean forward and get engaged. Because once they lean forward and get engaged, and they become an experimenter or co-creator in the business, their brains automatically starts producing these positive neurochemicals. Now they're hooked. They want to come to work and they want to give because they're making a difference. If their brains are not, then they are the resistors, they're skeptical, or they're standing back and they're waiting to see how this is going to play out. And while they're doing that, they're looking for another job where they get, where their brains can be connected, where they can be a co-creator or they can be positively impacted. And so a lot of the tools and, and management processes that we are using are not working because we're, we're fighting the wrong battle. We're, we think we're fighting a battle of let's just get everybody engaged and working and let's verbally kind of do that when we need to be fighting the battle of are, are, are the things that we're doing allowing our employees and customers to produce positive neurochemicals or negative neurochemicals? Mm, there's a lot there. So, um, so in addition, in addition to podcast hosts, I'm a, I'm a system and soul business coach. And it, the reason I chose system and soul is on one side, there's the system part of it. That's, that's pretty cut and dried. And the other part of every business is the soul of the business, which is the people. 
and and we talk a lot about um, talk a lot, help a lot, uh, get companies to be very intentional about the culture they're creating, um, yeah. and, and and then monitoring and staying active of it. And we don't always think of the vision as culture creating, but to think of that as a chemical conversation. When we when we talk vision at System and Soul, it's the where are you going? What's the what is this grand vision? When will you get there? But then having that why very uh, you know a compelling why articulated it seems would be almost step one to getting these getting your folks to lean in a little bit more and say oh i can be part yes. of it. would you agree with that i would totally agree with that because people want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves if they know that they are part of an organization that is making a, a major difference you know the big the, the big word right now is sustainability right because we're you know, everyone in the world is experiencing, you know, the hot temperatures and the sea rising and, and, you know, all the things that are going on. And so we're becoming a lot more aware of how important sustainability is. Well, if people are, if you have a company that is focused on sustainability and that's a core component and a part of your vision of how you want to do business, you're going to attract people who want to have a positive impact on sustainability. If they come and join your company and their values line up also with that vision, they automatically lean in. It's kind of like when Disney created Disney World and the Disney theme park. The criteria for hiring was, we're going to hire happy people. We're not going to hire people that we have to make happy. One of the values was, we're only hiring people who are naturally happy. So they don't have to work on, well, let's see if John's going to come to work moody or happy. Well, they know that based on how they hired him and his values, He's already going to bring that value to the table. Now we just have to te teach him the skills to play the role that we've given him with inside of the company or inside of the park. And it's the same thing with all the other businesses. It's when we hire for skills, but we haven't aligned the purpose and the visions and the values along with those folks that we are bringing in that we run into problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you almost want to hire on values first. We can teach skills, but values are... Values come, yes. come a little bit tougher. Um, it's interesting. I, I went, was at a, a Vistage um, event last week, and the speaker was talking about you know communication um, across the five generations that are that are really in the workforce right now. Uh, granted, the traditional generation is kind of almost almost phased out, but um, and how. The communication, depending on whether you're a millennial or a Gen Z or baby boomer or us X Geners, how you communicate or the, even the style, whether you pick up the phone or use the text, it hits us different. It hits each of us different. And I'm just, and then this morning I did a, a debrief for the company on, on disc, their, their, their disc styles and communicating. Yeah. Um, yeah. and the other thing that comes to mind is we, we think about how to communicate as far as, you know, just, being articulate, speaking well. But when I think of those two conversations in light of what we're talking, in light of conversations being chemical, how we speak to somebody, depending on who they are, is going to affect that com those chemicals. Like, like it, it can have a dramatic difference in how they show up for work day to day on whether, on whether if you're a high D and you're talking to uh, uh, an S in your high D manner, they're not going to show up to work happy or, or with the right with the right chemicals going. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. 
I would totally agree. And so as a as a leader of the organization, you have to consider not only your own style, but you have to consider the style of the people that are around you and how best to motivate them. And many times the best way to motivate them is not, you know, sending this memo or having this conversation to get things done, but it's creating um, an environment, creating scenarios, creating situations to where they can feel engaged and feel like they can lean forward. Here's an example. Um, one of my clients that brought me in, I was leading a team of, of folks and we, after a couple of years, we had a, uh, a turnover and we had a new team, some of the same people that were there before, but we had some new people coming in. Some people weren't given the updates about what the team was all about. So they came in kind of resistant, kind of skeptical, back of the brain. I know right then that they are doing negative neurochemicals. They're kind of cortisol adrenaline, and they're just kind of sitting back to see what's going to happen. The people who are already a part of the process, they're leaning forward. So I got two kinds of people, and I might have one or two in the middle that are just kind of wait and see. Let's see what happens. So I did an exercise with them that I learned from Judith Glazer in the book Conversational Intelligence called Rules of Engagement. And you can do this literally when you get to your office, if you're listening to this, you can just, it's really easy to do. So here's how it went. I asked everyone to leave their laptops on, on their desk. This is when we were co-created, uh, co-located, sorry, and we were all together. You can do it virtually as well. Um, and I had them, I gave them sticky notes and I said, hey, I, I, I'd like to do this exercise. I want you to, to think about a team that you were previously on that you loved. What is it about that team that you loved? Can't be a team that you didn't love. A team that you loved, what were five or six things that they did that you really loved about being on that team? And you hated the fact that that team ended and you had to be dispersed to other teams. So I, then I give them five minutes. And so as they're sitting there writing down what they loved about a team that they had fond memories of, guess what their brains begin to do? <laughs> create different chemicals, secrete different chemicals. Exactly. It starts. So even the ones who are negative, they're having to think, okay, well, okay. I remember John, they're, they're thinking, they're seeing the people, they're thinking about the situation. Their brains are beginning to get this positive vibe going on. So once they, we do that, I let them kind of marinate in that for a little bit and let the juices keep flowing. And then I'll say, okay, now we're going to take, each of those sticky notes, and I want you to go on the board and explain each one of the things that you wrote down. You know, and and and, and had them go within a reasonable time. They couldn't spend hours up there, obviously, and kind of gave them a little time period. And and as a second person went up, I said, okay, now as the second person, if you have the same word as the first person, put it on top of their sticky note or put it right underneath them. So basically, by the time we were done, we created an infinity diagram. You know, all the words of different areas, all the same. And then a few outliers on the far side of the of the board. And they would even explain what those few outliers were or why did they mention those things that weren't tied in with everybody else's. When we were all done and everybody looked at the board, they realized that 80% of what they had put down and had created were all the same. So those who were skeptical before realized that they had more in common than not with the people in the room. And what did the, what does that do when you see that the people in the room that you're working with, you have more in common than not? 
it creates those positive neurochemicals. After that time, we never had a bad meeting because now everybody was bought in and saw each other on the same playing field. And I also did associations, which is connecting neural memories of positive things with the new team. So their brains could process that. And that radically changed our team. And that really helped everyone to work well together. It's a simple exercise. It's called Rules of Engagement. It's in Judith Glazer's book, Conversational Intelligence. And then it is amazing. It's, it's amazing what it does. Because again, it helps us to fight the battle of building these great teams where before, if you're just trying to, okay, we got a bad team, we got a, things are not going well. Let me pull everybody in. We got to have a meeting. Guys, come on. We got to do this. I'm, I'm going to create a contest. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And we, we, we come up with all these strategies that are doing nothing but producing more negative, negative chemicals. And we're never getting everybody to lean forward and to see each other as, hey, I like being a part of this group. Because people, people will get, buy into and purchase from people that they like. That's also for our employees. Our customers will buy from people that they like, but we also want our employees to buy into what we're doing, but they're going to do that if they like us. That right there is worth the price of admission, everybody. That was awesome. <laughs> so a well, couple things. I just want to remind everybody um, that, that as you described the exercise, it reminded me that we are, all of us, whether we, no matter what religion, color, background, doesn't political party, we have way more in common than we do differences. And there's, if we, if we just focus on the, on the similarities, we're going to be okay, everybody. Oh, uh, exactly. The other thing, you know, I, I work with companies on their values and, and you do too, like calling them out. The, the rules of engagement, I would think at the end of it, you also have a pretty good idea of some of some base core values for this group. Like, you know, when you start to see the the, the sticky notes stacking up, there's something there. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we did. We said we said, um, you know, before these were the things that you valued in this team. I said the things that we all have in common. Guess what, guys? These are the values of our team. Those seven things that we all came up with that we all were writing down the same words and, and, and getting connected, those became the values. And I said, values are not just things that we say. This is how we're going to make a decision in the group. We're going to go back. We're going to have these values written on a board. And if we have to make a decision of how we're going to do something, we're going to take them through that criteria and say, hey, is, is, are, are we all aligned with this? Is this decision that we're going to make in line with our values? Um, this new person we're going to bring on as a team, are they aligned to those values? And so on. Uh, and Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, that's what it's all about. All of the companies that went from good to great had great values and people bought into those values. And that's why they became great companies. That's right. That's right. Awesome. So what I've gathered so far, you've written three books so far? Sure. Yes. Probably more, but we written three books. Uh, you're you're a musician. I'm going to go ahead and say accomplished musician. Um, you you are a consultant with uh, a successful business going. What's next? As you look ahead, what are you most excited for coming down the pipe? What I'm most excited for is I'm working. I'm I'll start working on a new book coming out. 
but I'm, I think what I'm most excited for are the people I've been able to um, get into my life, my, my, my coaches and my mentors and the people I've been able to learn from. Um, one of them is a gentleman named Dr. Paul Shilley. Um, he's, uh, he's into neuroscience. He's in the whole brain learning. Um, I, I've learned something from him called photo reading, which allows me to take, consume tons of material, but do it in a way that's very digestible. Um, um, obviously being able to work with or learn from Jack Canfield and some of his coaches, a lady named Janet Schwartzer, um, John Kramer, and then having the pleasure of been, of having the time with Les Brown. And knowing that uh, it wasn't the last time I'll be spending time with him and just what that weekend has done in my life and how it's energized me and for him to look and say, hey, I, you know, I, I see something that, you know, it's not just greatness in you. I see you can have a major impact globally and I want to help you with that. I mean, to me, that just kind of fires me up and go like, wow, OK, um, there's a whole lot more here to life that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, than than what's happened in the past, and so my best is yet to come. That is awesome. And it's not just because of me; it's because, of, because of the people I've, you know, it's it's really the team we build and making sure that I'm in the right room of people, and I'm definitely not the smartest guy in that room. Uh, so I have a lot to learn. That's awesome, and such a good good lesson for all of us that um, who you who's in your room, who you surround yourself matters. Get mentors, people that are farther along the journey than you are. Um, be intentional about it. Um, be careful. I, I I chose a mentor early on, early twenties. That um, it doesn't matter well, my story. I mean, it does. But my lesson was choose a good mentor. Find somebody that's got good morals, yeah. good values, and, and is farther along than you are. And you'll be you know you can experience what Gerald has with with just a love for life and a passion for what's coming, what's up ahead. It's awesome. Thank you, Gerald. You're welcome. So before before I turn you loose, a number one for folks that want to learn more about you to 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 have you in their room, um, how do they find you? What's the best way to contact you or seek you out? Sure, there's a website called Productivity Intelligence Institute. It's my website, and if you go to productivityintelligenceinstitute.com forward slash not me, uh, it'll actually take you to a page um, that's dedicated to this show. And, um, and they, they will see your, uh, podcast image and then they'll see some images where they can, uh, download some free tools from me about, um, weekly reviews or, you know, learn more about project management and the six things that, that all great, um, uh, goals that you need to achieve need to have in them. Or if they want to schedule a call with me and have a conversation about the things that I've learned and learn more about some of the, uh, the products and stuff. And then there's, there's links to my books at the bottom of that page. So that one page will take them and I'll make sure you have it for the, for the show notes as well. Outstanding. Thank you. Second thing, what is one important or impactful question you would leave with our listeners? What are you tuning into? What are you tuning into? What are you, what, what are you, what are you, and here's why that question is so important. And this is one of the things that, that it was the way it was said. And Les Brown said it, he says, what you tune into is what you turn into. Hmm. So think about, you know, if you're watching, if you wake up watching negative news and politics all day long, what you tune into is what you turn into. If you're around negative people, 
What you tune into is what you turn into. But the opposite is true. If you have goals and you're around positive people and you're learning and you're listening to books in your car and you're going after your, your aspirations, what you tune into is what you turn into. Awesome. Great question for all of us. Thank you, Joe, for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Listeners, as always, thank you. If you weren't tuning in, we wouldn't have no we would have no purpose for being here. So thank you for tuning in. Whatever grand vision you've been given, whatever dream God has put on your heart, remember, you can. Until next time, be bold, be humble, stay healthy, stay hopeful, and live life strong. Peace to you. Well, thank you so much for listening. For even more on turning trials into triumphs and seeking and embracing success, go to toddhalls.life. That's toddhalls.life. And I look forward to serving you. Until next time, be strong, be bold, be humble, stay healthy, stay hopeful. Peace to you.